Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm pleased to share a conversation today with Daniel Schwartz about his book, Ghetto, The History of a Word, about why historical terms and words matter, why it's important to understand their origins and how they've changed, and how they can be applied to understand our own world. Daniel B. Schwartz is a professor of history at George Washington University, and he's the chair of the Department of History there. He is the author of The First Modern Jew, Spinoza and the History of an Image, which was co-winner of the Salo Barone Book Prize for the best first book in Jewish studies, and it was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in History. He also recently published Ghetto, The History of a Word, which we'll talk about today. This is an important, fascinating book that traces the history of the term ghetto from 16th century Italy to the 21st century. It considers the origins of the term and how it's been put to use both within Jewish and non-Jewish contexts since then. As we'll talk about today, the term ghetto has become quite a multifaceted one, put to use as a metaphor to understand Jewish modernity in contrast with medieval Jewish life, in the context of the Holocaust, and also in the U.S. In this respect, it brings us into a much wider set of issues about how we use historical terms. Can we call contemporary political parties movements, or leaders fascists? What about the term concentration camp? Is it exclusively about the Holocaust? Or can we apply it to other things, like detention centers? As Dan argues in his book, Words Matter, and how we understand the life and the afterlife of historical terms impacts how and why we can, and in some cases cannot, use them in a variety of contexts. It really gets at the heart of why history matters, both that we should understand the history of ideas, concepts, and terms which have entered into the broad public lexicon, and also how we can understand the ways in which history and historical analogy can be used to understand broader contemporary issues. It's a great book, and I hope that you'll check it out. And I should add that Harvard University Press, who published the book, has sent me four copies to offer to listeners. I've shared a link in the show notes, and you can go there for a chance to enter a raffle to get a copy of the book. Thanks, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So hi, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, happy to have you here. I think this is a great book, a great topic. Uh, it's one that I think that I've been looking forward to reading ever since we were on a panel a number of years ago, where you first presented some of the work on the history of the term ghetto. I remember that, yes. It's come a long way since then. And it's great to see the book. Um, as I mentioned, this is such a phenomenal topic. Obviously, the term or the idea of the ghetto is a central keyword or a central idea within the way that people think about Jewish history. Um, and we'll talk about some of this uh, later on. But I think that one way for us to get started before we even get into why the idea of the ghetto matters is 
what is the ghetto? You know, what is the origin of the term? And I don't know if you want to maybe say something very briefly about how it's changed over time as well, just to start thinking about what it is that we're even talking about in the first place. Well, I mean, if we're thinking about the original ghettos of early modern Italy, the ghetto was a legally compulsory, totally segregated, and physically enclosed Jewish section of a town or city. In terms of the origins of the term itself, I mean, there's a whole cottage industry of speculation about where exactly the term comes from. And this kind of debate has gone on since the 17th, 18th century. One theory traces it to the rabbinic Hebrew term get or divorce, the idea that the ghetto was a kind of bill of divorce from Gentile society or that the Gentiles had given the Jews as a kind of get. That was a very popular understanding of the term in the 18th and 19th century. The Oxford English Dictionary traces it to Borghetto, means, I think, like a little town or something. And there's a host of other speculations. But the dominant view, and what I think is really the most persuasive understanding, is that it traces itself back to the island to which Jews were restricted in Venice in 1516. This island, before the Jews even arrived there, was known as the Ghetto Nuovo, or the New Ghetto. Now, in terms of how the island got its name, it's believed that this traces back to the presence on this island roughly a century earlier and further back of a foundry, a copper foundry for the casting of metal, really for the production of ammunition for the Republic of Venice. And foundry, it's speculated that it may be because of the term citare, which means to throw or to cast, so that it would evoke the casting of metal. So it starts with this foundry, and then by osmosis extends to apply to the, the entire island. And then when the Jews move there, it becomes associated with this new institution of the mandatory Jewish quarter. So ghetto is foundry. That's become really the something of a consensus, I would say, today, even though you'll still see books written that propose new etymologies. Yeah, I mean, folk etymology is a thing that we see in all sorts of realms. Yeah, the idea of the ghetto was get, you know, there's a bill of divorce. This was a highly popular folk etymology that's been written about in terms of its possible origins among the Jews of Rome. But then it spread beyond Jewish context so that Gentile linguists and etymologists you know, also kind of believed that it had its origin in the term for bill of divorce. Yeah, that idea and the term of the ghetto has come a long way, so to speak, both geographically, also conceptually from its very origins. And like you said, it's almost like a pedestrian origin. It's just what the place was, what it was called even before the Jews were there. And then it becomes associated with the Jews. In some ways, I think the folk etymology or the attempt at it actually speaks to the importance of this term to Jews, right? Because they have wanted to understand it on their own terms or to make a meaning out of it. I think that that's one way to to approach that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, initially the association between ghetto and Jews is totally arbitrary. It's haphazard. It just has to do with the fact that this was the island to which Jews were restricted. But then as the decades move on, as the centuries move on, 
it's almost as if you can't believe that something that's come to be so fundamental to the Jewish experience, starting with the Italian Jewish experience, doesn't have some type of mooring in a Jewish lexicon. This folk etymology of ghetto as divorce, as get, really is what I I see as almost like the first attempt to kind of Judaize it, to almost, like you said, to trace it back to the Jewish experience, to the Jewish lexicon, to a Jewish vocabulary itself, and therefore to give it added meaning. Add on to this, why do you think that the ghetto has become so important in terms of how Jews have understood themselves in their history? You know, one thing I said towards the beginning was that this is a key word or a key concept that in a certain way you can't really escape. When we look at the discourse, you know, the conversation within Jewish communities over the centuries, especially as we'll talk about later in regards to trying to understand the difference between modernity and what came before. When you think about the search for the origins, the the attempt to, like you said, to Judaize the term and connect it with some kind of essential Jewish something, you know, whatever that means, why do you think that the ghetto has mattered so much? Why do you think that, that it has become so important within early modern and modern Jewish history and then the way that people have talked about it too? Part of it has to do with its subsequent applications, the fact that the ghetto was essentially resurrected as a label for new types of Jewish communities and then subsequently, you know, African-American neighborhoods and even, you know, to some extent being applied more globally today. But I really think the turning point was the 19th century, was this period of debates over modernity and emancipation. That's really when the ghetto becomes a kind of keyword. It becomes, to some degree, loosened in its application. It no longer refers primarily to a physical place, but it refers to a whole period in Jewish history, or it refers to an ethos, a culture, a sensibility, a state of mind. And in terms of why ghetto, to some extent, it's hard to answer why this particular Italian term was seized on. I have some conjecture. I think that one reason might have to do with the kind of ceremonies and festivals that accompanied the raising of ghetto walls, the liberation of the Jews from the ghettos of early modern Italy by Napoleon's forces. It's one thing just to emancipate the Jews through issuing legislation. But when you kind of have a whole dramatic pageant like this, where the lifting of restrictions on Jews is accompanied by knocking down the gates of the ghetto and people dancing around the square and labeling it a new name drawn from the lexicon of the revolution. That kind of forms a very sharp opposition between emancipation and ghetto uh, that can kind of cement itself culturally. I also think that if you look at the history of the ghetto of Rome, so the Roman ghetto was the last of the old ghettos to fall. It endures until 1870, uh, long after other ghettos and elsewhere in Europe had been dismantled. The ghetto in Rome only comes to an end with the dissolution of the papal states in 1870 and the absorption, their absorption into unified Italy. There's a lot of concern. And really, as we move into the middle decades of the 19th century, among Western authors, both Jewish and non-Jewish, the situation of the Jews of Rome is increasingly something of a preoccupation. It's seen as the antithesis of what should be. It's seen as this relic, this vestige. So I think that because of all this 
focus on the ghetto of Rome, that might also have contributed to why the term became so synonymous with everything associated with kind of pre-emancipated Judaism. One of the things to think about here is the tension between the origins of the term and how it has been used in kind of its afterlife, both in the 19th century and also even up to today. And I think that for me, this raises a a very important intellectual and cultural question. You're talking here about the actual history of the original ghettos as they continued in places like Italy, and then also how the term is used to describe other things, which are in some cases very much like those ghettos, in some cases very different. So you're talking about the actual historical ghetto and also its historical memory. Again, this is why I think this is such an important issue. Which is more important, right? The actual ghettos as they were in history or the way in which they have been remembered and the way in which the idea of the ghetto has been put to use over the past few centuries and even up till the present? I'm going to kind of dodge that question by saying I think that both are important. I think that's the thrust of the book. I mean, on the one hand, it's important to peel away the layers of memory that have accreted in the image of the ghetto in order to understand the early modern ghetto in its own historical context, what it was and what it wasn't. I would kind of never cast doubt on the importance of that type of contextual understanding of the original ghettos. But I do think that there is this question of how this term survives and why is it resurrected and why is it applied so diversely? What level of analogizing goes on when you decide to use a term drawn from another context and to impose it on a new phenomenon, a new place? I think that tracing the later history of the ghetto, both in terms of its physical applications, its labeling of new types of spaces, but also in terms of this generalization of the term so that it's no longer associated solely with a physical place, but becomes synonymous with a whole state of mind. And that's something that you see not only in the Jewish context, but you see in the African-American context as well. I mean, there are physical ghettos, that labeling may be controversial, but you know, we associate them with specific types of neighborhoods. But ghetto has also become very much a colloquial term. It's very much used to kind of denote a sensibility, a culture, an ethos, a state of mind. Yeah, I mean, I think one way to even further generalize the set of issues as we think about this tension between history and memory, as it were, is that this, of course, in terms of the Jewish historiographical tradition in the past generation or so was so closely tied to Yosef Yerushalmi's book, Zahor. Uh, And I know that you studied with Yerushalmi at Columbia many years ago. I don't know if you want to comment a little bit about how you think that approaching the history of the ghetto and the idea of the ghetto helps us to understand the tension between history and memory on a broad scale. To some extent, it establishes their dissonance, as I was saying earlier, the importance of understanding that The Italian ghettos and the Nazi ghettos, for example, were totally different beasts. And that to understand the past, the early modern ghettos through the lens of the ghettos of the Holocaust is a misconception. But I also think that the history shows some ways in which history and memory are often interwoven. Just to give you an example, 
two major works of the 20th century. I'm thinking of Salo Baron's classic essay, Ghetto and Emancipation, and Jacob Katz's book on the history of Jewish emancipation, primarily in Western and Central Europe, out of the ghetto from 1973, ghetto and emancipation being from 1928. Both of them are forming this kind of almost binary opposition between the ghetto and modernity. These are historical works. They don't presume to be works solely of memory. They're trying to, in some ways, particularly Barone's essay, is trying to revise historical memory. But the whole concept of the ghetto they employ is one that already has been to a degree conceptualized or even converted into a metaphor. Because when Barone is talking about the ghetto, he's not referring solely to these legally compulsory, segregated, and enclosed areas of an Italian town or city. He means more generally the idea of the autonomous Jewish community of the Middle Ages and to some degree of early modern period as well. So that very understanding already speaks to the way in which memory has begun to shape and reshape, remold the idea of the ghetto from its specific historical contextual understanding to being used as a kind of keyword for the Jewish Middle Ages writ large. And the same goes for Katz's book. I mean, Katz is not just talking about the emancipation of Jews from physical ghettos. He's using the ghetto, what he calls ghetto times, as synonymous with a whole different ethos, sensibility, a whole different frame of mind. You know, it's kind of code for the pre-modern. Yeah, I actually had wanted to talk about the essay by Salo Baron uh, in particular, and, and I, I want to come back to that. I'm glad that you also brought up Jacob Katz's book. I think they both indicate the ways in which even scholars cannot really escape discourse about the ghetto. And we'll come back to that. But I want to talk about something I think that's really important that relates to this. Um, and it even comes out in the very opening of the book itself, where, if I recall correctly, the very first words are something along the lines, the words matter or that, that names matter. And I want to ask you, why is this? Why is it that terms and names matter? You've talked about the ways in which the idea of the ghetto has been put to use within Jewish communities, uh, you know, within the Jewish internal discourse, and even among scholars, what do we take away from thinking about how words and terms that have specific historical meanings are used, whether as a metaphor that applies much more broadly than the specific historical context out of which they emerged, or to apply them to very specific areas that are distanced from their origin. And here I'm thinking about how, um, especially in recent years, terms like fascism and concentration camps have become contested in as much as people have been debating, you know, to what extent can we talk about this political figure or that movement uh, you know, in various countries around the world as fascist or, or as a kind of new fascism? How can you use the term concentration camp to talk about contemporary issues? You know, last year in the summer of 2019, there was this whole debate about whether or not we can talk about the ICE um, detention centers as concentration camps. I know you've written about that issue in particular. Um, so when we look at this history of the ghetto, of the idea and the term of the ghetto, why do words and names matter? Why do the historical contexts out of which they come matter? And to what extent can we or should we or should we not use these terms to talk about contemporary 
issues. Why do words, why do terms matter? At a, a very basic level, words are the way we organize reality. They're the way we see the world. Now, certain words, though, carry more weight than others because they come to be used diversely and sometimes imprecisely because they have histories that are particularly fraught with connotations, whether negative or positive, they become associated with a particular culture and its experience and the way in which it sees the world and sees its place in the world. These are you know, what Raymond Williams famously called keywords. What's fundamental about keywords is that in some ways they convey more than a dictionary definition would be capable of expressing. They have all these insinuations to them. So I think that ghetto emerged as a keyword of the Jewish experience, in part because of this turn I described in the 19th century, in part because it came to be used to apply to new types of Jewish areas, be they mandatory or not. And then this transfer of the term to African-Americans, focusing on the post-war period in the United States, then you had the whole issue of in some ways, a term that had become so identified with the Jews and Jewishness being effectively appropriated by another group, I made into a keyword of their own lexicon. So it raises questions of, do groups have certain claims to particular words? Do they have ownership over words? Some of the resistance that I describe in the book, Jewish resistance to the African-American usage of ghetto often focused on the sense that this was a kind of rating of the Jewish experience for its keywords to apply in a totally different context. But to the latter part of your question about the debate we're having today, how so many of our cultural debates today often hinge on words. On the one hand, people, when you're having a debate over words, you know, will sometimes say, well, this is just a semantic debate. In other words, the disagreement isn't really that significant. If we just can put the word aside, we can focus just on what the word is conveying. But I think that that is belied by the fact that so many of our most pressing cultural arguments today pivot on words, on what they mean, on how they're defined, and who gets to define them, who gets to use them, who gets to apply them. I think that just to start with the case of uh, the last summer, the summer of 2019's debate, over the labeling of these detention centers as concentration camps. I think you saw the way in which, you know, a term that has come to be associated with the Holocaust, even though it has a history that branches out beyond the Shoah. And even as scholars have shown within the context of Nazi Europe, the concentration camp was only one type of camp that the Nazis used. But nevertheless, it's so associated with the murder of six million Jews, that there was a sense when Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or AOC used it on the part of some, and particularly I think of the Jewish establishment, that she was demeaning the memory of the Holocaust, whereas others were saying, well, first of all, there's this larger historical register to the term, you know, you're saying the Holocaust is implicit, but it's not necessarily implicit, or some said, you know, yeah, she is referencing the concentration camps of the, of the Holocaust. And if the idea of never again is to mean anything, 
then it has to be employed not just with regards to Jews specifically, but to counter any kind of dehumanization that involves some type of confinement of a group that's really not you know, seen guilty of any crime. I think it shows you the way in which terms do matter. This became a whole controversy of the summer of 19, and one that you know is endured to some extent to this day, or if, as you mentioned, the whole debate over whether fascism can be used to refer to the current administration, the Trump administration, I should say. Is this administration fascist? And there's been a whole interesting debate over that. I mean, are you understanding fascism as a historically specific ideology, in which case you might focus on the differences between, let's say, Mussolini and Trump? Or are you meaning fascism as a broader type of cultural style or discourse in which you know, there are certain resemblances that you can seize on that would make that analogy more persuasive, more tenable? I think that those are two excellent examples of why words matter. And I think that the controversy over the application of ghetto too, whether ghetto should be used to refer to the Jewish immigrant enclaves of late 19th, early 20th century Western European American cities, whether it's appropriate in the Nazi context, whether it's appropriate in the African-American context. Right there, too, you see the way in which it's not only the place or the institution itself that can become contested, but the way in which we refer to it. So I think there's so much to think about here. The use of the terminology of the ghetto um, in the African-American context, talking about American cities and and so on uh, in the post-war era, um, to what extent that was contested by Jews, to what extent that was eventually accepted, that use by Jews, um, I think is a really interesting point to start to look at these many, many issues that you talked about. We had the previous conversation with Mark Dollinger, where we talked about this history of the relationship between Jews and African-Americans in the U.S. and the ways in which the Black experience and the Jewish experience has been sometimes understood as being a parallel with one another. One of the interesting differences, perhaps, between the use of the term ghetto to talk about African-American communities in the U.S. and the controversy about using the term concentration camp to talk about the detention centers actually represents a shift in this respect in terms of how Jews understand themselves in the U.S. And of course, we can't speak about all Jews. Uh, Many people look at these issues very, very differently from one another, even within the Jewish community. But I think that this is a really important distinction to be made about the way in which terminology was used in the immediate post-war years and then in the 21st century, you know, that Jews perhaps are even more resistant to the use of terms that they think of as quote-unquote theirs to describe things that aren't within the circle of Jewish experience. And what I'll just say by that, I just think that perhaps concentration camps, even more than the ghetto, is understood by Jews today as being quote-unquote exclusively Jewish, when of course when we think about the actual historical developments, in many ways, the historical ghettos of Italy were actually exclusively Jewish, whereas in reality, the concentration camps in Europe were not only for Jews. In fact, the first concentration camps were created for political prisoners, not specifically for Jews. This just relates to the broader issue of the way in which the Holocaust has been understood by many Jews as exclusively Jewish, when of course, 
we're not the only victims of the Nazis. And this just relates to a broad set of issues about how it is that the historical memory of things like the ghetto and how things like the Holocaust are understood and then applied in different ways. Well, in terms of the comparison or contrast of ghetto and concentration camp, I think you're quite right. And it is somewhat paradoxical that term ghetto that originally is moored in the Jewish experience, exclusively Jewish, as you put it, and has kind of branched out since then. There has been resistance to that. There has been resistance to the application of it to the African-American experience by African-Americans themselves, whereas concentration camp that has a longer history that predates the Jewish experience, in the wake of the Holocaust, that term has come to have a valence that so kind of tightly links it to the Shoah, to the annihilation of the six million, that they're seen as almost a step too far. Whereas I think most Jews today, not all, but most Jews today, don't really resent the use of the term ghetto to refer to African-American segregated neighborhoods. But I think there was much stronger resistance to using the label concentration camp to refer to the detention centers. In terms of what you were saying earlier, I think it's very interesting the way in which certain terms can presumed parallels or analogies. I think you're quite right that when African-Americans began using the term ghetto increasingly in the 1940s, the 1950s, it was very much done in the shadow of the Holocaust. Not necessarily that African-Americans were saying that the black ghettos they were talking about were identical with, let's say, the Warsaw ghetto or the Ludge ghetto. But this was a way of almost driving home that the racism that Americans were fighting overseas was part of one of the main ideals that they were fighting for in Nazi Europe, that there was this racism here at home and you had an institution that could be labeled by the same name for all the differences. So I think that that was very much a conscious thing. And on the one hand, you saw the ghetto invoked by Jews as a way of kind of expressing a certain commonality between the Jewish and African-American experience. They found, for example, amicus briefs that were submitted by Jewish organizations to the Supreme Court in the 1948 Shelley versus Kramer case, which focused on the legality or the enforceability of restrictive covenants. This brief basically said something to the effect of, we Jews are aware of the evils of the ghetto system and project domestication in the American context. Another example, advertisements taken out by the American Jewish Congress pointing to these parallels between the Jewish and African-American experience, saying things like, and I'm paraphrasing here, we've both experienced slavery. We've both experienced ghettos. But the very articulation of that parallel, of that commonality, of that analogy through the use of a shared term can also, I think, foment conflict because there can be some sense of, on the one hand, as I said before, you're using a Jewish term or even in the specific context in which being used, the post-war era, you're using a Holocaust term. You're betraying the meaning of the Holocaust. You're de-Judaizing the Holocaust. Or on the part of African-Americans, there can be some sense of, well, now that you're out of ghettos, 
you have no qualms about keeping us in the role that Jews continue to play in many of these African-American neighborhoods as landlords, as uh, small businessmen, as merchants, as superintendents, as teachers, as social workers, to see them as kind of representative of this, not just this white majority that's that he's sitting on their necks, but also was kind of betraying the Jewish experience specifically because of their experience in ghettos. A term that can articulate commonality can also very much drive a wedge between two groups as well. And then there's, I think, just the other issue of the ghetto because of its multiple applications. When it's used, when it's applied to a new set of circumstances, there can be the issue of, well, which ghetto are you harking back to? Are you harking back to the Lower East Side, London's East End, Chicago's Near West Side, these type of immigrant enclaves that were legally voluntary, but where people clustered together. Jews might be more accepting of that. They might see that as part of their experience. And there too, it can drive a kind of conflict. It can be like, well, we escaped from the ghettos. Why can't you? That type of analogy can be very different if you're associated with the Warsaw ghetto or the Ludge ghetto which is seen now as part of a genocide and therefore trying to kind of equate the African-American ghetto to the Nazi ghetto can be seen as absurd and offensive. Yeah, I think that the set of issues that you're touching on here speak to this more recent debate very clearly about how we can use the terms fascism or concentration camp as well about this question of who owns these terms, what do they represent? Absolutely. And I I fully agree with that. I think that certainly in a case of concentration camp, that's true. Interesting thing about fascism is that even the leaders or the regimes, the administrations that are sometimes dubbed fascist or neo-fascist today, uh, whether it's the Trump administration or the governments in Hungary or Poland or Turkey, None of them embrace the term fascism. They see themselves as Democrats. They eschew that label. So that you know is a kind of a, an interesting wrinkle in terms of no one I think is claiming ownership of it and resenting its application because they see it as kind of belonging to them. I think that the issue at stake here ultimately is how we use terms and how we use history. The history of the ghetto, the history of the term shows that it can and it will be applied broadly. And yet you have some people who say, well, it really shouldn't be. And I think that one of the issues that that it brings forward has to do with the purpose of history, the purpose of studying these things and of understanding the past um, on its own terms, which is to say that somebody could come out and say, okay, you know, you shouldn't use the ghetto to describe something else. Like you said, like, you know, segregated African-American communities, because that's not what the actual historical ghettos were. But this debate about fascism and about concentration camps is in some ways no different, which is to say that some people have come forward with regards to this and other people say, well, there are actually historical differences between, say, the fascism of Hitler and Mussolini and the regime of Putin or the Orban government in Hungary or anywhere else that they want to, what they want to call fascism. I think part of the debate about, for instance, can you use fascism to describe contemporary regimes, is the people who say, well, there are differences and therefore you can't make any comparisons. Well, there are always going to be differences. So does that argument kind of neuter the role of the historian in making historical analogies? What is the role? What is the 
the importance of historical understanding, whether it is to point out differences between historical events, historical terms, and how they can be applied to understanding our world today, or towards understanding the bigger picture of how we can make historical comparisons on a broad sense. I believe in historical analogies. I think that analogical understanding is fundamental to interpretation, period, and to historical interpretation more specifically. It's natural that we try to assimilate new events and try to form some type of comparison to know what we have on reserve in our larger collective experience to try to make sense of things. And analogies can often be helpful in terms of drawing out certain commonalities that are important to understand. That said, I think that the problem with historical analogies is that they're often facile or they often imply a kind of conflation rather than some type of resemblance, which isn't balanced with a sense of difference, a sense of disanalogy, if you will, of where two types of places, whether we're talking about ghettos or concentration camps, whether two types of ideologies or style, whether we're talking about fascism, the way in which they diverge. And I think that, you know, there's no way of kind of stopping this debate by ruling out all analogies. I mean, just, you know, it was interesting last year or, you know, in the summer of 2019, during that controversy over labeling the detention centers concentration camps where the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. came out with a statement basically trying to outlaw any historical analogies when it comes to the Holocaust. There was major blowback to this from the historical community against this type of idea of the radical incommensurability of the Holocaust to the point that we can't point to certain commonalities, certain comparisons with other genocides. No, I think these, this, any attempts to try to arrest that process of historical analogy will always fall short. And while it's important for historians to establish differences, to understand the early modern ghetto, for example, in context, understand the differences between the Nazi concentration camps and the, the American detention centers, the notion that you're going to be able to stop words in place to prevent them from taking on new meanings is just not thinking historically. That's just not the way words work. Words change. They take on new meanings. They take on new applications. I'm not denying the role of the historian trying to kind of expose differences, saying, well, when you use ghetto this way, do you mean ghetto in the sense of a mandatory Jewish quarter? Do you mean it more in the sense of a kind of cluster Jewish community? All that is important, but the idea that you're going to be able to stop the evolution of ghetto once and for all is, I think, futile. Yeah, I think that part of what I was trying to say before, to be clear, is that I think that the role of history, the role of historical knowledge, um, actually has a part to play in both of these angles, which is to say that on the one hand, we need to point out when historical analogies are, as you said, facile, uh, when somebody is making a historical comparison that doesn't make any sense or that is misrepresenting the facts. It's it's not just about nitpicking or anything like that, but historical understanding helps us to understand when historical analogy doesn't work, but also understanding these differences, understanding, for instance, the history of the ghetto or the history of the concentration camp 
means that we then can use those ideas for relevant and important comparisons that need to be made when it needs to be done. So I think that's perhaps, again, a way of kind of dodging the issue and saying, well, actually, it goes both ways. But I think, as you said, that historical analogy is critically important. If we can't make historical analogies, which was what the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum said at the time about the use of the term of concentration camp, then basically history is useless in a way. But in some ways, I think that actually the role of historical understanding, the role of history, why history matters, is that it allows us to understand when comparisons are worthwhile and when they aren't. I couldn't agree more. So, I mean, one thing to add on to that also is, again, to go back to the issue that you said at the beginning, that that words matter, is that, for instance, you look at the history of the term concentration camp, and there are things which we probably should call concentration camps, which we don't want to, or which we have, as Americans, have been uneager to do so. And I'm thinking here in particular within the historical context of the 1940s, of the, the internment camps of uh, Japanese Americans, where certainly if we wanted to, we could call them concentration camps. They actually were at the time. They were referred to as such. Right. But the point is that what we call a concentration camp and what we don't has a great political importance in the same way that what we call a ghetto and what we don't has great political importance. Yeah. I think one difference between, let's say, ghetto and concentration camp is that Ghetto is a much more venerable term, has many different layers of meaning. It's been used in very diverse ways so that some of the attempts to reserve it for the Holocaust, to basically establish the Holocaust ghetto as the paradigm, and therefore any future use of the term as a distortion of history, why that has been unsuccessful. Whereas I think in concentration camp, a lot of these older uses of the term or simultaneous uses of the term in the case of you know, the Japanese in the United States, these have kind of faded from historical memory. And what lasts is the association of concentration camp with the Holocaust. And therefore, for now, at least, I see it as the more inflexible term. And I think that was what provoked the controversy last summer in a way that the use of ghetto today would not you know, elicit quite the same blowback. Right. So, I mean, I think this is actually a really good avenue to bring us back to a conversation about the idea of the ghetto more specifically, that you're suggesting that as opposed to concentration camp, which has been viewed more exclusively with regards to the Holocaust and with the Jewish experience, perhaps because it's more recent and as a result of uh, the nature of Holocaust education in the U.S., etc. There are all sorts of reasons why one might say that the term concentration camp has been viewed more inflexibly than ghetto. But as you were saying, that's more of an inflexible term, whereas ghetto has become more versatile in a way. So you talked about the 19th century as a time when the terminology of the ghetto became very widely applied. What do you think was going on then that allowed the ghetto as an idea, as a figure of historical memory, as opposed to the actual historical events to become so powerful and so broad as a metaphor and as a lens through which Jews looked to understand their history as a whole and also their contemporary experiences, as opposed to, for instance, concentration camp, which has become so inflexible in a way. That's a great question. And I can only speculate. I mean, I do think there is some arbitrariness why, you know, a term that basically was limited to Italian through the early modern period. In other words, 
you might have similar institutions in other countries, but they were labeled by native names. So in Germany, it might be Judengasse, Judenstrasse, Judenviertel. In French, it was the idea of the Juiverie. So why ghetto It's in particular, why that term was adopted and adapted, you know, is somewhat hard to say. I do think, though, that it does say something about the nature of modernity and how, you know, modernity needs its others. It needs something to contrast itself to in this very idea, essentially, of living in new times in the search for something that could be a kind of catch-all for the pre-modern Jewish experience with different connotations, whether, you know, you saw it as, you know, the Middle Ages as this dark and dreary period in which Jews were persecuted and oppressed in the ghetto as the epitome of this persecution, or whether you associated ghetto more with community and solidarity and those kind of traditional values that are being eroded with modernity. Nevertheless, you needed some type of catch-all, some type of shorthand, you know, for the medieval experience. Uh, And for whatever reason, ghetto came to play that role. But I think that that role is something that modern identities fundamentally need. I think this is the case beyond the Jews as well, in as much as when we try to understand modernity in the way that modernity has been understood by people today, by people in the 19th century, even in the 18th century, people have consistently required a foil to understand their own modern selves. And this goes to thinking about the history of nationalism, the kind of universal narrative of national movements of, a, of a, an ancient or older golden age, period of decline, and then a sort of modern resurgence, whatever that looks like. People always need a foil to understand themselves. For the Jews, it in many cases happened to be the ghetto. And I would say also, I mean, just to think of my earlier work, I think that this idea of the role that certain images and metaphors and myths play in the construction of Jewish modernity. This is, I think, one of the main threads that link my previous work on Spinoza's Jewish reception to this history, essentially, of you know, the ghetto and its various afterlives. Uh, and that, you know, that Spinoza's rupture with the Jewish community of Amsterdam, his excommunication, right, this became symbolic for many later Jews, liberal Jews, secular Jews, of the kind of beginning of Jewish modernity. Spinoza as the first modern Jew, that you can trace a type of lineage back to Spinoza. So I see the ghetto as playing kind of the opposite role to Spinoza. Spinoza was the symbol of the modern. The ghetto became the kind of de facto symbol of the pre-modern. And both effectively were necessary for the formation of modern Jewish identity. That's a great way of bringing your previous book in conversation with this one, because in many ways, both Spinoza and the ghetto are historical developments of early modern Europe and of the nature of early modern Jewish communities, whether we look at the segregation of Jews in the ghetto, uh, the restriction The ghetto is a metaphor for the broad restrictions on the Jewish community. Spinoza standing in, in his excommunication, standing in for the corporate model, so to speak, of the Jewish community and throwing someone out of it, you know, as it were. They both stand for the early modern Jewish community, whatever that looks like, which modern Jews wanted to contrast themselves with. 
both in a sense, as you were saying, the word you used was foils and both provide that, you know, the Amsterdam community, the Sephardic community of Amsterdam that excommunicated Spinoza and the ghetto serve as these antitheses, as these countertypes or as foils, as you put it, that later Jews need in order to kind of map themselves out, to understand who they are. And they can trace a kind of ancestry back. In the case of Spinoza, he becomes their prototype, their progenitor. In the case of the ghetto, it becomes exactly what you're escaping from. Even if you never lived in an actual ghetto, in a truly compulsory, walled-off Jewish neighborhood that had only Jews and no Gentiles, even if that really wasn't your experience, but nevertheless, you think of the ghetto as associated with the Jews being something of a society apart. And leaving that in your own experience becomes crucial to understanding your modern Jewish identity. Exactly, exactly. I think one of the things that is so fascinating about this, to go back to something that you said much earlier in our conversation, is that the idea of the ghetto is kind of inescapable, that it is part of the popular discourse surrounding Jews and modern Jewish life. Uh, and it's also part of the scholarly discourse. Uh, and you mentioned, for instance, uh, Saul Baron's essay, Ghetto and Emancipation, Jacob Katz's book, Out of the Ghetto. I would argue that Saul Baron's essay is actually, has been more impactful and has had a greater influence on contemporary Jewish scholarship than his other, you know, much more magisterial works, things like the social and religious histories, 18 volume history you know, of the Jews, uh, etc. And I think there are all sorts of reasons for that. But I think that one of the things to think about here is about how the history of the terminology of the ghetto is kind of inescapable, both from the Jewish public, who has used it as sort of an imagined past, a canvas against which they can paint whatever kind of images they want to think about the past to contrast their own experiences with, and also for scholars who, even though we theoretically understand that there is a distinction between the actual historical ghetto and the historical memory, as scholars, we're still in conversation with that in some fashion. Scholars still remain often wedded to certain discourses that attest more to the workings of memory than, you know, to into historical precision. And I think that's definitely the case in Barone's essay, which I agree with you. I think that um, has had far greater impact than his multi-volume history of the Jews, both the first one and then the second one. It's synonymous with this term, the lachrymose theory of Jewish history that, you know, has become basically what any survey of modern Jewish history teaches on day one. And I think, you know, but Barone's essay, as I said earlier, right? It's a whole model of ghetto. I mean, at one point, he even says basically something to the effect of the Jews created the ghetto before the Gentiles did. In other words, he's associating the ghetto with this larger pattern of the Jewish quarter, be it voluntary or compulsory. And that is a product of this 19th century reworking of the term. Yeah. I mean, I just think that the juxtaposition of ghetto and emancipation is so powerful. I don't know if you want to comment on that, both in terms of the actual debates about emancipation, the debates about its nature, the political objectives of emancipation as they took place in the 19th century, and then how it reverberates into the 20th century, whether we look at this one influential essay by Baron or just much more broadly. What is it about the contrast between ghetto and emancipation 
that has been so important and that has been so resilient in a way in terms of how Jews, both scholars as well as non-scholars, understand Jewish history and the Jewish experience. I think one thing that's interesting is the way many of the kind of modern Jewish movements, with the exception of, let's say, ultra-Orthodoxy, the way in which they tried to position themselves against the ghetto so that liberal integrationist Jews, religious reformers, always warned about any type of you know, retreat to ghetto Judaism, which was old-fashioned, the old ways, a kind of sequestered, insular, introverted type of Judaism. You know, also how the idea of the ghetto became part of the larger debate between, let's say, integrationist Jews and nationalist Jews. So Zionism, on the one hand, saying that it was a kind of therapy for the idea of the ghetto Jew, that it would rehabilitate him or her. Whereas integrationists were arguing, well, Zionism is just aiming to create another ghetto, be it in Palestine or wherever, where a kind of separate Jewish homeland might be created. It will just be a enlarged ghetto. I mean, it definitely becomes interwoven with these major debates in modern Jewish politics over what the Jews are, what the vision of the future should be. And all of them find themselves positioning themselves against the ghetto. And I mean, I'm just thinking also of Theodore Herzl's uh, play from the 1890s, The New Ghetto, where essentially he's arguing that liberal Jews who think they've escaped from the ghetto actually inhabit the subculture of their own. They're not truly accepted in the Gentile world. They're snubbed and they don't realize it, but they still inhabit the ghetto. Yeah, I think what you're illustrating here in the book and also throughout our conversation is the powerful image of the ghetto. In fact, actually, what's interesting about it is that perhaps one of the reasons why it's so powerful is because it is so devoid of historical information for most people who actually utilize it. Again, this goes back to the contrast between how the term ghetto has been used versus how people are debating the use of concentration camp. Most people know very little about the actual historical ghetto, so they can paint it in any way that they want. Whereas people know more about concentration camps, again, just because it's a much more recent history. I think that might be also part of the story here as well when we talk about the, the utility of the ghetto as a concept that people can use for whatever kind of political arguments that they want to make, historical arguments that they want to make, is that it's almost kind of vacuous in this respect. This is not to denigrate it, but just to say that this is perhaps part of the history of historical memory, which is that things that people know less about can be utilized in a much more varied set of ways. I couldn't agree more. I think that part of the process of the conceptualization of the ghetto, of the, for lack of a better term, metaphorization, the conversion of ghetto into a metaphor, that gave the ghetto new connotations, new insinuations, be they positive or negative, but it basically emptied it of historical content so that it became a very plastic term. It became uh, very malleable. Echoing something I said before, I think that the concentration camp, because it's um, at least within the Jewish context, is seen as more proximate and also in some ways more shocking. It doesn't have the same type of historical range to it. There was one thing that, that I wanted to think about that in your introduction um, to the book, you have this very tantalizing bit that you end it with. You know, you make this this observation And I'll just quote that you say that the historical saga of the ghetto, 
which of course is everything that we're talking about here, the historical saga of the ghetto resembles the saga of the word Jew. And then of course, you know, you don't really talk about it so much over the course of the book because the book is about the ghetto. But I don't know if you maybe want to elaborate on that in terms of thinking about, again, why words matter and how a term can be used in different ways and so on and so forth. You know, why is it that you say that these two things actually have a close parallel? I think that what's interesting in both cases is that you have a term that originally is kind of anchored in a physical place. So in the case of Jew, the idea of a Judean. And obviously that idea of a Judean in antiquity, people have tried to understand, you know, should we talk about Jews in antiquity? Should we talk about Judeans? Even the idea of Judean doesn't only connote a physical place, uh, but also some of the the ways and mores and doings of people doing things in a Judean sort of a way, but at least is anchored in a place. And the same thing is true of ghetto. I mean, I think one of the arguments I make in the book is that really through the 19th century, uh, ghetto had a relatively limited range. It was not used all that figuratively. You know, it was anchored in a physical place in the compulsory, segregated and enclosed Jewish quarter. And in both cases of ghetto and Jew, what happens over time is that the application of the term becomes looser and it no longer has to denote a physical place, but it can evoke a whole set of values, mores, ways of doing things, beliefs, ideals, so that you see this similar process in both cases. I think another interesting uh, parallel is the way in which both terms can be appropriated by other groups. The idea of the Palestinians, for example, as the new Jews, or certainly, you know, even the African-American context, you know, upon you first using that term ghetto, there was an attempt to kind of insert themselves at some level or kind of appropriate from the Jewish experience and apply it to their own. A term that comes to be appropriate by other groups and often used against Jews in the very process, right? So that the Jews themselves maybe don't have the same claim to be Jews in the role of kind of having been a victim in history as, let's say, the Palestinians today, or in the case of the ghetto, African-Americans appropriating the term and basically seeing Jews as having moved from the side of the ghettoized to the side of the ghettoizers. Yeah, I mean, I think that that might also, again, be tied in with this question of concentration camps in as much as I think that for some Jews, you know, they see the use of the term concentration camp to talk about contemporary detention centers as an appropriation of the term. But it also is a highly disconcerting comparison because it also does highlight, for instance, the role of Jews in the specific policies of family separation, people like Stephen Miller and so on and so forth. Um, that, like you said, indicates in ways that I think are uncomfortable for a lot of Jews the ways in which the role of Jews has shifted over the course of the past hundred years or so. Yeah, I absolutely. I think that is to some degree bidding ghetto farewell, seeing it come to be associated more with African-Americans than with Jews themselves. And I think that's absolutely true. I mean, when I teach courses on the ghetto, now most of my students, they hear that term, they think of blacks and blackness or maybe they know something about the Holocaust and they associate with the Holocaust, but they don't have any idea of these older uses of the term. Uh, it's come to be thought of as, you know, associated with black culture first and foremost. But 
the very process of seeing a term that's so identified with your historical experience come to be used by others, I think was also part of the process of Jews kind of moving into a more prosperous, more powerful place in society and wrestling with that. What does it mean to be comfortable and well off and at the same time to be Jewish? This podcast is in general, it's about the ways in which Jewish history matters. It's also going beyond that about the ways in which history matters as a whole. But I think that that some of what you've been talking about and, and what you wrote about in the book and what we've been thinking through in our conversation today is the ways in which some of the aspects of Jewish history, for instance, the ghetto, that they matter in a wide range of contexts. One of the ways that you put it in the book was you talked about how the ghetto has kind of gone global, right? When we think about the importance of Jewish history and the importance of terminologies like the ghetto or concentration camp or anything else, in what ways do you think that the images or the histories of the Jews matter in a really broad context? And to what extent does the Jewish history of these things matter? What I'll say to kind of clarify what I mean by that is just, as you said, when you teach a class on the ghetto and you get a range of students, some of whom are Jews, most of whom are not, they probably, like you said, don't associate the term ghetto with Jewish history to begin with because they understand it from a different context. So to what extent does the Jewish history of the ghetto matter? To what extent does Jewish history matter in terms of how people understand their own lives, whether they understand Jewish aspects of it or not? One of the interesting phenomena of the past half century or maybe longer, maybe shorter, is the degree to which many of these words that are kind of like Jewish keywords have flown the coop, as it were, and have been globalized and generalized and appropriated by other groups. I mean, I'm thinking not just about ghetto, but about a term like diaspora, for example. Diaspora studies today, I'm not an expert in it, but you know, I wonder to what extent Jews are a major focus of that field. Because in some ways, these terms are generalized, and then the Jewish origins of them are effaced to a degree. But I think that recovering these origins is important because I think that understanding the ways in which these terms come out of a particular historical experience, you know, just these flat terms that don't have much of a horizon, don't have much of a background. When you kind of acquaint people with this history, then I think you complicate the process of application. You complicate the process of using it in an indiscriminate, unthinking way. You force upon people to kind of wrestle with the fact that this term has a longer history to it, and that the Jewish history of it shouldn't be forgotten. I think it also indicates ways in which Jewish history provides certain tools or terminologies to think about the histories of other oppressed peoples, but that also, to some extent, that, as you said before, you know, as Jews have moved into positions of power, that perhaps the Jewish aspects of those histories are less important than the way in which they can help us to understand the struggles of other peoples in contemporary times? I think both are important. I use a quote by Joan Scott, you know, at the very beginning of the book. It's from her famous article on gender as a tool of historical analysis. 
from the mid-1980s. But she writes, those who would codify the meaning of words fight a losing battle. For words, like the ideas and things they are meant to signify, have a history. So as I was saying, I mean, you attempts to kind of resist this exporting of terms, I think is futile. But trying to kind of render the terms more multidimensional, understanding these different historical layers and wrinkles, I think is essential in understanding exactly as you put it, the way in which Jewish history has offered these types of conceptual tools for making sense of other people's experiences. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation, which I think is thank you for having a fascinating, really important one. So thank you. I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, I hope that you'll share it with a friend. You can find Jewish History Matters on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so on. And this particular episode can be found online at jewishhistory.fm slash ghetto. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Schwartz about the history of the ghetto and its afterlife. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.